Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland, professor at York University in Toronto. This is the second of two episodes, and in fact is the last episode in this particular series. We're completing our discussion of the book of Hebrews and how this document portrays Jesus. So far, we've already noticed that there's an ongoing argument in the book of Hebrews regarding the superiority of this figure of Jesus in relation to other commonly uh, respected figures within the history of Judaism. Here in this episode, we analyze more closely the portrayal of Jesus as Melchizedek, the high priest. I also explain how the approach of the book of Hebrews shows an author who's both heavily influenced by the Hebrew Bible, a very Judean author on the one hand, but also an author that's influenced by Hellenistic philosophy. At least the ideas of Plato come to play a role in the portrayal of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. So I hope you enjoy this final episode in the series, and I hope you'll look forward to the next series, which looks at diversity in early Christianity and explores things like the Apocrypha, the Nag Hammadi documents that are traditionally labeled Gnostic, and a variety of other types of Christianity in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. I hope you'll come again. Let's get a little bit of background here on who this Melchizedek guy is and why it would be that a Judean in the 1st century would go to an obscure figure that's mentioned only twice in the entire Hebrew Bible, and when he's mentioned, hardly anything happens. Uh, why would they pick Melchizedek and portray Jesus as primarily Melchizedek? Primarily the new Melchizedek. There are several passages that help you solve the mystery and several pieces of evidence contemporary or just slightly before the book of Hebrews that help you understand where this is coming from. First of all, take a look at Genesis 14. This is the key passage for why Melchizedek is important for the book of Hebrews. This is in the context of the story of Abram. You guys are familiar with the story of Abram from Genesis when we were dealing with Paul's midrash of the story of Abram being circumcised in that. In fact, we are just before those passages that Paul liked to focus on a whole lot. When Yahweh makes a covenant with uh, Abram that he'll have children and all that, we're just before that in the narrative of Genesis. And so we're following Abram's adventures in the book of Genesis at this point to various places. He's traveling around with Lot. Here in chapter 14, verses 17 and following, we have one of the only passages that mentions Melchizedek. In a way, the book of Hebrews is a midrash on this one little passage, influenced by some other contemporary Judeans who likewise focus on Melchizedek. It's partly because he's such a mysterious figure that we know nothing about that he ends up getting picked within some contemporary Judaism, including the Dead Sea Scrolls, looking forward to the Melchizedek coming as the final emissary of God and the final intervention of God. So let's look at this passage in Genesis chapter 14. The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him one-tenth of everything. Then the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, etc. Nothing more about Melchizedek. That's all you got. Abram meets him. He gets blessed by Melchizedek. 
He gives Melchizedek a tenth of what he has, and that's the end of Melchizedek and what, what we know, or at least what Genesis presents to us about this supposed figure. Why would someone write an entire writing in the first century characterizing Jesus as this mysterious figure? Partly due to the whole force of the argument here. Remember that the author is going through a series of analogies that show that Jesus is superior to well-respected figures within Jewish scriptures. And here, the point he's setting up, and the part of the reason Melchizedek is chosen by the author of the book of Hebrews, is because it allows the book of Hebrews to argue that Jesus, Melchizedek, is superior to Abram, the father of the Israelites. And also allows him to argue that Melchizedek is superior to Levi. The high priest Melchizedek is of a more superior order than the Levitical order of priesthood. On top of that, there are contemporary Judeans in his time that don't follow Jesus, or at least people around the same time as him, who are Judeans, who likewise like this figure of Melchizedek and develop all kinds of stories about what's going to happen, about a figure coming in the order of Melchizedek. Let me move on to one of those passages here, Dead Sea Scrolls. The community of Judeans that lived out on the Dead Sea that you guys have learned about a little bit in connection with Paul, remember that they're living especially in the 2nd century BCE and 1st century BCE, before Christianity exists, before there's followers of Jesus, etc., right? You read a passage from the rule of the community, for example, when we were dealing with Paul's apocalyptic worldview, you read the, the passage from their rule of their community that involved the angel of light and angel of darkness. So you've read a little bit of the Dead Sea Scrolls. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, they look forward to an end time. Remember, they're apocalyptic. And they think in terms of the end is near, God's going to intervene in a kind of cataclysmic way and, and wipe out evil and set up a good kingdom. That whole scenario that you're so familiar with. And there are a variety of ways in which some authors of the Dead Sea Scrolls express an expectation of how the end times are going to be completed. One role that they have within this scenario of how the end times are going to happen is they look forward to messiahs. In fact, it seems that they look forward to two messiahs, to two anointed ones, a priestly messiah in the order of Aaron and a kingly messiah as well. And they look forward to God sending messianic anointed figures who will bring about the final intervention of God and complete God's final battle with evil and set up God's kingdom. And so they look forward to that. But in some of the other writings in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they develop notions somewhat differently. And one of those writings precisely develops the notion that Melchizedek is the final functionary in God's intervention to wipe out evil and set up a new perfect and blissful kingdom. And so we have Judeans in the second century and first century BCE here out on the Dead Sea Scrolls community who look back to figures in the Bible like Melchizedek, just like the book of Hebrews did, but develop it in a different way. But there's similarities here. Both are applying the category of Melchizedek to end time figures who are in instrumental in the final intervention of God. Both are doing that. Both the author of the Dead Sea Scroll that I'm going to read to you and the author of the book of Hebrews are doing that. So we're dealing with very Judean ways of doing things here. Even though the end product could be interpreted as supersession, as I've already mentioned. Here's a little segment from this book of Melchizedek from the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's known as 11Q Melchizedek is the name that has been given to it. It's fragmentary. It begins in the second column, the text that we have. And it starts to talk about the inheritance, the order, of Melchizedek. 
and talking about someone in the order of Melchizedek bringing liberty for them, to free them from the debt of all their iniquities. And this will happen in the first week of the Jubilee, which follows the nine Jubilees. And the Day of Atonement is the end of the tenth Jubilee, in which atonement will be made for all the sons of God and for the men of the lot of Melchizedek. Further on, it interprets a passage from Scripture here, a psalm and says its interpretation concerns Belial, Satan, and the spirits of his lot, who were rebels all of them, turning aside from the commandments of God to commit evil. But Melchizedek will carry out the vengeance of God's judgments on this day, and they shall be freed from the hands of Belial, Satan, and from the hands of all the spirits of his lot. To his aid shall come all the gods of justice, He is the one who will prevail on this day over all the sons of God, and he will preside over this assembly. This is the day of peace about which God wrote of old through the words of Isaiah the prophet who said, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace for the messenger of good who announces salvation, saying to Zion, Your God reigns. The Dead Sea Scroll community looks forward to a Melchizedek figure in the end times, playing the role of finalizing God's kingdom. There's a couple of other passages of the Hebrew Bible that you need to know about beyond the Melchizedek ones. But he doesn't explicitly quote them. It's just his mind is so saturated with these passages from the Hebrew Bible. Everything he's saying assumes these passages from the Hebrew Bible in some way and assumes a particular understanding of them. One of these passages that is explicitly quoted is from Jeremiah. The book of Hebrews develops the notion of a new covenant. That's not new. The book of Hebrews isn't coming up with it. It's not a Christian thing. It's a passage in the Hebrew Bible that's being used from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a prophet in the time of the destruction of the first temple. He's a prophet who looks forward to the renewal of Israel. After the destruction of the temple and the exile, he looks forward to a time when Israel will be restored. Very common among prophets of the Hebrew Bible. Looking forward to restoration of Israel. And part of his explanation of the restoration of Israel involves this particular passage that the book of Hebrews interprets in a particular way and applies to Jesus in a particular way. And there are plenty other contemporary Judeans beyond just the author of the book of Hebrews who likewise like this passage. The Dead Sea sect is one of them. They love this idea of a new covenant. This idea of a new covenant in the Dead Sea Scroll community is in fact central to their whole identity. So the book of Hebrews is not alone as a Judean doing this. But let's look at the passage here for a moment. The time is coming, declares declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. The imagery of husband and wife that is very common between God and his people. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares Yahweh, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This idea of what you could call, don't modernize it too much, but an internalization of the covenant, an internalization of the Torah. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know Yahweh, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more very important to how the book of Hebrews is interpreting Jesus. That this new covenant involves remembering their sins no more. This idea of a new covenant in the Hebrew Bible. And we have the book of Hebrews interpreting it in a particular way. So that's very important to know. 
Another thing that's very important to know from the Hebrew Bible in order to understand the mindset of the book of Hebrews is Leviticus chapter 16. Because again, this saturates his mind in the way that he's explaining who Jesus is and the way that he's explaining the difference between what he calls the old cult, the old temple, and the new covenant, and the new cult, and the new temple. In Leviticus, remember Leviticus is the book of the five books of Moses that deals with the Levitical priesthood. Remember that Levi is considered the priest of Israel and all his descendants, you draw priests from the descendants of Levi. So the Levitical priesthood is what the book of Hebrews calls the old cult. And in the book of Leviticus, it's all the guidelines for the Levitical priesthood to engage in what they need to engage in, which is centered in the temple in Jerusalem and is centered on sacrifices for the sins of the people. And so that's what the book of Leviticus is all about how to engage in the cult, how to engage in the sacrifices and in a proper manner so that the sins of the people are accounted for. And the purpose of accounting for sin in the Hebrew Bible and in Judaism, it's the idea that you can't approach God at all if sin is present. So in order to be God's people, you need to have errors of the people that block you from being able to approach God accounted for. God can't be anywhere near sin. God is holy, and that's the contrast to sin in the Judean way of thinking. And so the whole function of the temple is that the priests have the function of ensuring that the, the errors and sin of the people is accounted for sufficiently that God can approach his people to some degree. And the holiest place that's closest to God in the symbolic universe in the mindset of Judeans is the holy of holies in the temple. And there, only the high priest can approach. Only the high priest can go there and only once a year. And it's precisely that same notion that God, a holy God, can't have errors anywhere near him, cannot have sin anywhere near him. So the high priest can only approach God that close and only the high priest once a year. And it's precisely to do a very special ceremony. The atonement, the atonement, makes atonement for the sins of the people in a very fundamental way once a year. And in chapter 16 of Leviticus, it explains what the Day of Atonement is. and explains what the high priest, the main Levitical high priest, there's only one high priest over all the other priests, that the one main Levitical high priest once a year does a special, special sacrifice on behalf of the sins of himself and of the sins of the people, and then goes into the Holy of Holies and approaches God most closely. It's a symbolic place where God is and sprinkles blood there on behalf of the sins of the people, thereby making uh, it possible for their sins to be made up for, and making it possible for God to continue to have a relationship with God's people. And so the Day of Atonement in chapter 16 is central to the mindset of the book of Hebrews, as is everything else I just talked about there, in terms of the mindset of Judaism overall. And here you have the story, uh, you know, explained in the chapter 16 of Leviticus, that two male goats need to be offered for sin, that one ram needs to be offered as a burnt offering. You then have it explained how it should be slaughtered, that one of the goats needs to be slaughtered for the people, and the blood needs to be brought in to beyond the curtain of the Holy of Holies and sprinkled there by the high priest. This makes atonement within the sanctuary, making it possible for God to relate to his people. The other goat gets let free, and this is where we get our word for scapegoat, and goes out into the desert. And that's symbolic in some ways, of the, the sins of the people going as far away as possible so that God can approach the people again. So sin gets accounted for in different ways. 
in the Day of Atonement. But the point is, this is the ultimate day for accounting for sins in some ways, at least for how the book of Hebrews is looking at it. And what the book of Hebrews does is takes this as the model for what Jesus did and takes Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice of the Day of Atonement and makes it the once-for-all Day of Atonement sacrifice so that no more Day of Atonements will have to be done. So that too is very important, Leviticus 16, for understanding how the book of Hebrews works. Let's get back to the book of Hebrews now that I've given you a little bit of the background of what Hebrew scriptures he's saturated in and how he, he can be understood as a Judean doing that in the first century. Let's look at chapter 7 now where we finally get the portrayal of Jesus as the Melchizedek more prominently stated and more, more fully explained by this author. And then I'll also walk you through some other important concepts in chapters 7 to 10, including the idea of a better covenant, a new covenant, the idea of an earthly tent and a heavenly tent. Very important for the Platonic, Hellenistic ideas of this author. And then maybe things will all start making sense for you when you're uh, reading through this. Look at chapter 7, where we have the more explicit interpretation of the Melchizedek figure. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. And here goes the interpretation. That's mainly summarizing the passage from Genesis. Here goes why it's important for the book of Hebrews author. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Separate the Melchi and the Zadok and you got yourself king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. And he's called a king in the narrative of Genesis. He is without father, this is important for the book of Hebrews, or mother or genealogy. Here we've got Midrash going on, and what we moderns would call it is making stuff up. But we know that that's not what we call it in, your, in the first century. It's just Midrash. There's no mention of Melchizedek's family. So this allows the book of Hebrews to interpret it in this way. He is without father or mother or genealogy and has neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So this is the specific spin, the specific midrash interpretation of the Genesis figure of Melchizedek that makes it fit very well how this author wants to portray Jesus. He's suggesting Jesus likewise has, is eternal, likewise is the ultimate high priest that has no genealogy in a down-to-earth sense. See how great he is. Back to the superiority thing that's been the ongoing argument. Superior to angels, superior to Moses, now superior to Abraham, and superior to Levi. Levi, remember, is the main priesthood in the history of Israel. See how great he is. Abraham the patriarch gave him a tithe of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brethren, though these are also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who was not their genealogy, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. That's the point of what the author is doing here. He's using the story of Melchizedek blessing Abraham to show that the superior is blessing the inferior and showing that Abraham giving money is a, a symbol of him being inferior to the priest of El Elyon, the priest of God Most High. Here tithes are received by mortal men. 
there by one whom it is testified that he lives. Take a look at this next sentence that is an interesting midrash that allows the author to assert that Melchizedek is superior to Levi. Levi's not even existent yet. Abraham is the patriarch. There's no Levi yet. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still a sperm swimming around in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. He didn't put in sperm swimming I was just seeing, listening in your word. By Abraham recognizing Melchizedek as superior, it was also his descendant, Levi, recognizing the priesthood of the earthly temple, recognizing the superiority of the priesthood of Melchizedek. This is an interpretation still of those few sentences in Genesis. Now, and then it goes on to affirm that what the point of it all was now. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, through the descendants of Levi who functioned in the temple in the earthly temple, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So there you have it. Jesus presented as superior to Abram, the patriarch of the Israelites, and superior by way of the sperm of Abraham, superior to Levi, who is later to come along. You then have the development of this idea of a better covenant now. In chapter 7, verses 20 and following, we have the idea of a better covenant with a once-for-all sacrifice. Remember that the whole section from 7 to 10 now is juxtaposing two things. Juxtaposing the cult centered on Jesus as Melchizedek in a specific temple. Juxtaposing that with the cult of Yahweh as functioned in the earthly temple under the Levitical priesthood. And juxtaposing the two. And juxtaposing a new covenant with an old covenant. An original temple with an earthly temple. It's all a juxtaposition, the whole section of 7 to 10 here. And here, the book of Hebrews is arguing now Melchizedek functions to bring the people near to God in a way that was not the case before. And it was not without an oath. Those who formerly became priests took their office without an oath. But this one was addressed with an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus a surety of a better covenant. So there we have the idea of the new covenant, the, described as a better covenant. It's interpreting Jeremiah. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the function of the priest making intercession for the people and allowing them to approach God is still the mindset here. That's a Judean concept. But here it's being applied to Jesus, changing the dynamic of that in a new way, mind of this particular author. He goes on a little bit further in that section. Jesus has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. So there you have the idea of a high priest who actually gives himself as a sacrificial victim and that the sacrifice is somehow a once-for-all sacrifice in the mind of this first-century Judean author. In chapter 8, we begin to get the Platonic language coming out strongly. They, the cult that takes place, the priesthood, serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the temple, they had a portable tent, temple back then. He was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. 
But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry which is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. He then quotes Jeremiah 31 that we've already read about the new covenant and interprets that as applying here. So he has the idea of a new covenant that's better, and he's interpreting Jeremiah in the process. He already has platonic language to speak of this, of the earthly things being copies of some original heavenly thing. That is a platonic way of talking. Let me talk a little bit about Plato now before we get into some more of this. Plato has the notion that what we perceive uh, in our daily life through our senses is not reality. So that what we touch, what we see with our eyes, what we hear with our ears, what we taste with our tongue are all faint recollections of something. But what we perceive from it and therefore what we interpret to be reality is not reality at all. Instead, what we perceive as reality around us are faint recollections, faint images, faint replicas, faint copies. Copy language is very important in Platonism, and it's important in the book of Hebrews. There's the original, and there's the copy. We as human beings living on the earth here only see faint recollections of what is original. We see copies that are not fully representative of something that is real. And one of the analogies that is used in the Republic, for example, is that cave imagery that some of you might know. So one of the images is of people. The existence of people is like people being in a cave, dark cave, with some light coming down into the cave, but the people can't see the light. They're instead facing the back of the cave. And on the back of the cave, they see images of things. They see shadows. And they think they know what those things are. Say they saw a shadow of a rabbit. They might think, oh, there's a rabbit. That's a rabbit. I know what a rabbit is. But they're only seeing a faint, shimmering shadow on the back of the cave. They never turn around to look and say, oh, where's the light coming from that's giving us the slight, shimmering shadows? And so this idea that Plato has is you gain knowledge through rationality and achieve overcoming the senses, overcoming the passions, in order to actually recognize the originals and to realize that your senses are fooling you into believing you're seeing real things when in fact the real things are the originals. The realm of ideas is another way in which Plato expresses it. That there's a realm of ideas that are goodness in its essence the original goodness, and that we in our life experience slight recognitions of good things, but we never see goodness in its essence. That realm of ideas where the perfect rabbit is, where the perfect goodness is, where the perfect you name it is, where the perfect temple is, in the case of the book of Hebrews. And so the book of Hebrews is going to do that, that the earthly temple is the copy it's a faint recollection of the true temple in heaven. That the covenant, I would suggest to you, that God had with his people was a faint recollection of the true covenant. What the book of Hebrews has as the new covenant. And what the priesthood of the Levites and the high priesthood and the function in the, especially the day of atonement is just a faint recollection of the ultimate role that Jesus plays as Melchizedek 
in entering into the heavenly temple, the perfect original heavenly temple. So this complicates things once you realize this platonic basis of how the author is working, because it complicates the idea of new and old, doesn't it? Because it turns out that new is in fact original. The temple where Melchizedek does his sacrifice is in fact the original, not some new thing. It's the original upon which the earthly temple was based. So it's complicated. This new and old language can throw you off. And it's true, though, that he talks sometimes of obsolescence, though, which definitely sounds like supersessionism. But on the other hand, this platonic idea of original and copy is essential to understanding how this author is working. Let's look at it now in a couple of the passages in chapters 9 and 10 and see how these platonic ideas of shadow, copy, and outer contrast to an original and ideal, these categories he's working with. The outer temple and the original temple. The shadow temple and the original temple. The copy and the ideal. And that the heavenly models are the original and that the earthly replications are merely that. They're good. They're good things. They're replicating something that's perfect. But they never achieve the original. So chapters 9 to 10 primarily to see how this works out. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly sanctuary. For a tent was prepared in the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the temp table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain stood a tent called the holy of holies that I've explained to you already is important on the day of atonement. Having the golden altar of incense, etc., he's describing what's in it. Look at the next paragraph there, verses 6 and following. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go continually into the outer tent, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the errors of the people. So there we have the Day of Atonement being expounded there. Look down to verse 11 now, where we're getting the new setup, or rather the original setup. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred which redeems them from the transgressions under the first covenant. So this idea of Christ's action as the sacrifice and as Melchizedek somehow sets in motion the new covenant. Look a little bit further down, verse 22 and following. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Very Judean. But look at what comes next, very Hellenistic. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into a sanctuary made with hands, a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as with the high priest enters the holy place yearly with blood, not his own. 
for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. But notice that language of copy, very prominent. The copies of the heavenly things. The earthly sanctuary, the earthly cult, the covenant that's associated with the Levitical priesthood are copies of some original in heaven. It continues with this language. In fact, it continues with some other languages common in Plato's writings to describe this distinction between the ideal world where the true things are, where reality is, and the perceptions we have around us, which is not reality. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices which are continually offered year after year make perfect those who draw near. It's not that this author is saying priesthood and the temple and earthly temples bad. That's far from what he's saying. He's saturated in that whole notion of the Levitical priesthood. And he's saying that it was good, but it was only a copy. It was only a shadow. What context is this author writing in? He's a Judean writing in the context where the temple has been destroyed. He's not saying the temple's bad. He's saying, well, the temple's gone. It doesn't matter. It was only a copy, to put it in simple language. The ideal things in a Platonic thought are in heaven, in the mind of this author. And there's a true temple. And there's a true cult, and there's a true high priest. And Melchizedek is that original high priest that came to do the true final once-for-all sacrifice, accounting for sin. We don't need to worry that the temple is gone, because that has been done in the true original temple in heaven, is how this author's trying to convince his audience. He comes back at the end so that you don't forget why he's been doing this portrayal of Jesus, so you don't forget why he's portrayed Jesus as superior to angels, superior to Moses, superior to Abraham, superior to Levi. The point of all that was to convince a particular audience of Judeans who are, in his view, followers of Jesus but not following Jesus and focusing on Jesus enough and are st instead spending more time in the Judean synagogues with Judeans who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so at the end, to remind you of why he's been emphasizing the superiority of Jesus and that you need to focus mainly on Jesus, he comes back to his exhortation of do not fall away and instead hold fast. A call that sounds maybe something like what we encountered to some degree in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew wasn't so much calling for that as he was recognizing that it was happening. He, remember, there were problems between that Judean group of Jesus followers and other Judeans, more along the lines of rabbinic Judaism, and there's struggles between them. Here we have an author worried about struggles not happening and worried about followers of Jesus being too comfortable the book, author of the book of Hebrews, calling on people to separate themselves from other Judeans. We had the prayer that was revised by some rabbis in the late first century. Attempts by certain rabbis to remove and separate Judeans who don't believe Jesus is the Messiah from those that did. Remember, we read that prayer that condemns Nazarenes, followers of Jesus. And in the Gospel of John, we had in the late first century, likewise, stories in the narrative of characters being thrown out of the synagogue. So there's a variety of things happening in the late first century. And different groups are defining themselves differently. And they have to do so by distinguishing themselves from others to some degree. Here, this author is actually arguing that followers of Jesus need to distinguish themselves from other Judeans. 
In the other cases, it was other Judeans kicking out some followers of Jesus. So it depends where you are and what group you're in, what's going on in the late first century. But we are seeing the beginnings of what will become the, the parting of the ways. We are seeing the beginnings of what develops into two branches of Judaism heading in two different directions and never joining again. The parting of the ways between what becomes Christianity and what becomes Judaism. We're seeing the beginnings of that going on in the late first century. We're by no means seeing the end of it. We're by no means already seeing separate, total separation and two different religions, by no means. And we're seeing it in this case through a particular author's portrayal of Jesus. A portrayal of Jesus as the ultimate high priest, an ultimate sacrifice, who functions not in an earthly temple, but in the original temple in heaven. And that's the overall characterization of Jesus the book of Hebrews has. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music of this podcast is my own remix of Brian Eno and David Burns' Help Me Somebody from My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, copyright 1981, None Such Records, with an Uzbek vocal sample by Savara Nazarkhan from her song Kunlarim, copyright 2007, Real World Music. Both are used with permission under Creative Commons type licenses.